Good morning, welcome to Insiders. The government this week dodged a bullet on the postal survey. The High Court has ruled it will go ahead. And if it returns a strong yes vote, then that will be even better news for the Prime Minister, who's anxious to be rid of the issue. But just how engaged will he be in the debate? If this week is any guide, he'll do the minimum and keep his focus where he thinks it should be, on energy prices and reliability. Well, good morning. OK, far away. I'm here with the Energy Minister, Josh Frydenberg, to talk about the Australian Energy Market Operators report. This AEMO report does confirm our concerns about the impact on price and reliability that comes from the accelerated closure of coal-fired power stations. We are going to have a reality check in this nation unless we get this power situation right. At AGL, we are getting out of coal. They've been funding ads all around the country saying they're getting out of coal. Let's be honest, things need to change. The Energy Minister and I are already in discussions about how we can ensure that that power station stays in operation for at least another five years after 2022. Within hours, that was rejected by the CEO of AGL, Andy Veazey, and then the Prime Minister changed his tune. What I've said to you is precisely what I've discussed with Andy Vesey. He misrepresented the conversation he had with Andy Vesey, someone he knows so well he can't pronounce his name, by the way. He says AGL wants to get out of uh, coal, uh, and, but he has said that he is prepared to sell to a responsible party. Apparently now they're, uh, they're not getting out of coal straight away. They're at, least, they're, at least, they're at least open to staying in coal. You have to keep Liddell going. Malcolm Turnbull today has thrown coal a lifeline. You've got to remove from the concept your belief in, oh, I like coal, I don't like coal, you better like power. The AEMO report does reset the debate. If you don't like power, then you're going to find out what Australia was like to live in around about 1880. The reality is coal will continue to be an important part of our energy mix going forward. There's no appetite in the market or in the industry for building new coal-fired power stations. We can't afford to be ideological about it. Energy prices are an urgent matter right now. Dealing with the um, rise of renewables by subsidising coal-fired power stations is like dealing with the growth of the internet by subsidising tax machines. Where is the interest from the opposition in energy prices? Malcolm Turnbull just has to stop the politics. Malcolm Turnbull has capitulated to Tony Abbott and the far right of his party. If the government wants to solve this problem, they need to get over their policy paralysis and actually have a policy that will ensure investment. The leader of the opposition was a lion, a lion on AM this morning about the energy companies, but a pussycat when he was in government. The power of large energy companies, their ruthless pursuit of profits at all else, is hurting Australia. We are for affordable and reliable energy. Labor is for blackouts. Well, to pick up on that, our guest this morning is the Treasurer, Scott Morrison. And our video editor, Hugh Parkinson, is back with his take on the High Court citizenship cases. Come on up here. All you have to do is tell me the truth and then we don't have a problem. You know how you don't want to lie to your parents? You don't want to lie to me worse. Well, that's coming up and believe me, it's, uh, it's worth waiting for. But let's took a, uh, take a look at the Sunday papers with our panel. 
Catherine Murphy, Michael Stutchbury and Mark Riley. And perhaps I should explain why I'm here. I, I know I promised you last week that Barry would be back. Well, he found his luggage, but he had a stowaway. He had a bug, so uh, he's at home uh, convalescing. Now, Stutch, uh, <laughs> the Nationals are having their federal conference in Canberra this weekend and they have voted to remove subsidies on renewables. Yes, I'm reading, Andrew, I'm reading from the Sunday Age here. The, the Nationals, as you say, voted to remo remove all subsidies for renewable energy providers over a five-year period and to freeze them at the current level for the next year. Of course, in the whole uh, energy debate that we had in the, in the lead-up and we've seen in uh, Parliament and national politics over, uh, uh, over the past week, uh, the main subsidy for renewables, of course, comes from the mandatory renewable energy target. 23% or so of all power by 2020 must come from renewables. That'll be mainly solar and wind. And uh, the Nationals in the coalition are the ones that lead the campaign against, uh, against renewables and pro-coal, even though quite a few farmers are caught up with lock the gate mm -hmm. and locking out gas. But Matt Canavan, who we saw there, said uh, uh, from the Nationals, said, we've taken all the subsidies away from our farming sector and now the biggest racket going around is the renewable energy sector. And we have the inimitable uh, Ron Boswell who is telling the Nats to stiffen their spines. Have a look. Australia's industry, farming, food processing, they just can't take it. Power bills are going up and people are shedding jobs. Please don't reject this because the message it sends out is the National Party is pro-renewable energy and it isn't. Now, the debate in the Nationals wasn't all of, of that tone because uh, we had David Gillespie. He was warning the Nats that some of their supporters used renewables. Mm. Yeah, well, if you do a big... Uh, and if you do big uh, solar solar plants or wind farms and so forth, that will be in uh, out in the bush, so to speak, in regional areas. Mm. So there will be, and as I say, the lock the gate, there is an element of the farming community which has been whipped up into the anti-gas campaign. Mm. So no doubt there will be divisions within, uh, within the nationals. Mm. Good point such as making because it's self-defeating. All There's a lot of money, a lot of capital coming in to invest in these places and they want to buy land. Mm. So you've mm. got you know, Taiwanese pension funds, you've got the big Canadian pension funds, you've got all these investment um, instruments from Europe and America. Uh, FERB is being overrun with, with applications to buy land for wind and solar mm. plants. Who's going to get that money? Well, mm. exactly. Now, it's not the only issue that's being discussed, of course. The, uh, George Christensen, uh, <laughs> he, has, uh, he wants to ban the burqa. Let's hear from him for a start. You've got to ask yourself, um, why would uh, anyone, uh, let alone a woman in this uh, day and age, want to wear uh, such a thing, given that we know that it's, its nature comes from an oppressive culture? I do a lot of business into Indonesia, I do a lot of business into Saudi Arabia. They don't insult me and I'm going to make sure that I don't uh, insult them. Well, if Barnaby Joyce gets his way, this won't get up. What, what are you hearing, Murph? Well, it's, it's not clear, uh, just because I don't think we can assume because Barnaby Joyce has come out publicly and said, I don't support a, a banning of the burqa. I don't think we can assume that's what will happen in the Nationals Conference, and they are actually literally debating this as we go to air. So hopefully we'll be able to update the viewers in the course of the program. So Barnaby Joyce has had a different attitude to this sort of stuff over quite a long period of time. He's been emphasising the importance of trade with the region and, uh, and of just sort of not being provocative, basically having, having constructive relationships with Muslim communities and with Muslim countries. So it's interesting that, uh, that Barnaby has come out and said very clearly what his position is ahead of this debate. And 
conventional wisdom in politics would tell you, oh, well, the, 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 the motion's heading for defeat. But I think we need to wait and see and on that And it is front. the Nats, yeah. yeah. Now, big news in the sporting codes, uh, Mark Riley. The NRL is actually backing the legalisation of same-sex marriage to the delight of a former player, Ian Roberts. Yeah, it's a big move, Probes. Uh, Ian Roberts, uh, you know, a noted hard man of rugby league, but the biggest hit-up he made was coming out as gay some years ago very emotional thing for, for Ian to do. And now he has convinced Todd Greenberg, the CEO of the NRL, to publicly back the, the ES campaign. And, uh, and that's a big thing because uh, the central objective of both the yes and the no campaigns now is actually get people to vote. Yes, the P word, participation. Participation is mm. a big thing. So in, in the last... Um, um, postal ballot we had well, on the uh, delegates to the uh, Republic, the turnout was only 47%. Yeah. And among younger people, it was much lower, around 33%. So young people who were saying they've always wanted to have their say on this issue, just put and your there, there was a poll in there was a poll on the box. weekend, wasn't it? Yeah, they're uh, saying that, that, that uh, they're really concerned about the turnout because um, you know it might be 30% of people saying they won't mm. bother to vote. Well, if you don't vote, don't bellyache about it later, about the result. If you, this is a democracy, have your say. And the post box for the young kids, that's that red thing. It, it looks it, like it's an extra from, uh, from Doctor Who. <laughs> you know, you might have walked into it now and again when you're, you're Snapchatting. That's where you, you bung your, your envelope. And uh, you don't have to lick a stamp. It's self-addressed and just whack it in there. Thanks, Riles. OK, well, that's the Sunday papers. Now we'll go straight to our pro program guest this morning. And it's the treasurer, Scott Morrison, who joins us from the Sydney studios. Now, first on the... Uh, good morning, Treasurer. G'day, Andrew. Look, first on the economy, the National Accounts this week offered some positive news with business investment and government spending underpinning a, a slightly higher-than-forecast growth. But 1.9%, it's hardly flash. You just made the point, Andrew, it's come in above what the forecast was just in May of this year. And so that's obviously a welcome result. But the key welcome results in the figures are the ones you also mentioned, and that is the pickup in business, business investment. I mean, this is something we've been looking and we've had policy driving towards now for several years. That's what our enterprise tax plan has all been about. And it's, I note that uh, these particularly increased business investment figures have come through after we were able to get uh, those uh, tax cuts through for small and medium-sized business in March. Look, we're miserable buggers in the media, I, I must say, so let me, uh, pardon me for turning you to some it. of the challenges. <laughs> <laughs> I get half of the growth in the June quarter was from people running down their savings. This must concern you. Well, that's actually not true. Um, it's not a negative savings ratio. It's a positive savings ratio. So they're not drawing down on what's in the bank account. They're just not saving as much as they used to be. Now, when, when the savings ratio went up after the global financial crisis, I mean, that was people getting into the cave, putting the money into the bank, putting it under the bed, all of those sorts of things. Now, the savings ratio today at about 4.5% is higher than it was pretty much for the entire Howard Costello period. And so the savings ratio now at 4.5%, we've seen it come down. That's also a product of interest rates also being set at, at historically low levels. So the whole point of having a lower interest rate in monetary policy is that people wouldn't be putting as much aside into the bank account, but they'd actually be engaging the economy. So that is actually the purpose of that. Now, if it, if, I mean, under the Howard government, it got below 2%. Um, and then they are saving less, the aren't they, Treasurer? So they are saving less, and you'd expect that when wages are flat 
and you've got some real pressures on, on unavoidable cost of living, and particularly in the energy sector. So those figures don't surprise yeah. me. But at 4.5%, um, I wouldn't call that an issue to be concerned about. But given that we have got the most indebted households, it's surely not sustainable for household consumption to be, to be based on people spending less. Well, this is why we're so keen to see the investment lift, as we've already started to see. Uh, we're keen to see the profit growth be sustained because it's when you have those two things in place, you've got businesses putting more people into jobs. We had 240,000 jobs last fiscal year. And as the labour market tightens, that's obviously going to lead over time to a boost in wages. And uh, that's what we're looking forward to. That's why I talk about the better days ahead because we can see all these things lining up. More jobs, more investment, profit performance improving and I want to see that now flow in uh, to the household sector with them being able to see uh, better improvements in their wages. You've been promising of uh, better years ahead for quite some time well, now. Since, but I, and you mentioned, yeah, well, okay, you, you mentioned wage growth. We're yeah. still stuck at 25-year lows. Yeah. It's no wonder people are grumpy. Well, I agree that with household income so flat, and let's not forget um, that our tax system and our welfare system is designed to protect against rising wage inequality. And that has actually been occurring. Um, on the wealth side, it's a different story. But on incomes, the tax system and the welfare system has, has protected against that. But with incomes flat, this is why growing the economy is so important. This is why not smothering the economy in $150 billion and more in higher taxes is so important not to do. And that's why we're not going down that path. That's Labor's path. They want to increase taxes on the Australian economy. That will throw a wet blanket, not just on growth, but on wages and on investment and on jobs. Now, wage growth did actually uh, bump up a bit, but it was actually yeah. because people were working more hours, not because their conditions had improved. That, that's true. What we saw is bigger wages bill because we had 240,000 people, 80% full-time jobs, in work. And we had people working more hours. We saw, we've seen the, the labour force participation rate go up. So this is why I've been talking about better days ahead, Andrew. I mean, we're not there yet, but all of these signs, investment, exports, growth, jobs, we're starting to see this happen. And that's a result of the pro-growth policies and the, the resilience and strength of Australian businesses getting out there, winning contracts, doing the work. Now, the Reserve Bank's forecasts have been consistently wrong for, for six years. Uh, we have a situation where low unemployment doesn't seem to guarantee any longer that we get paid more. Why? Well, there's, I think we're seeing this across a lot of different economies around the world today. It's not, it's not peculiarly an Australian issue. Uh, but we are seeing, whether it's in the construction sector, particularly in the engineering side and the civil construction side, uh, we are seeing in the IT security section, uh, sector of the economy, we are seeing in the, in, the, in the health sector, where those forces, where that pressure is building uh, in the labour market, we actually are seeing higher wage rises in those sectors. So I think that gives us, um, I think, some encouragement about what we can expect down the line. I mean, we've had business investment now in the non-mining sector actually growing at 10% over the last three years. Now, th that, is, that is a welcome... Sorry, uh, the last three years. That is a welcome... That is a welcome change. So do you want bosses to be more generous with their workers? Well, that's a matter between them and, and their workers. But as their profits improve, then obviously the case for wage rises obviously builds, and particularly when they're putting people on. Now, I mean, we have seen a change in the combination of people on awards, on enterprise agreements, and, and even on individual contracts. And what we have seen is more, more workers 
being on award arrangements. Now, there have been some changes around um, you know, teachers in particular now being classified as being on wards rather than enterprise agreements. But now is obviously, I think, a really good time with people coming off enterprise agreements uh, for them to sit down and, and work out uh, where things are heading over the next right, three well, to five years. Let's turn to energy. The reason people might tell you that they're feeling grumpy is, of course, the horrible prices of gas and electricity. Sure. Now, you guys have been in power for four years. How much of this is your fault? Well, let's take gas, for example. The reason we have the gas prices going where they are is because the East Coast gas market, um, the restrictions were lifted and the Labor Party allowed that out of Queensland to just go offshore and without reserving what we needed here in Australia. Hang now, on, I'm going to stop you there because mm. we've heard a lot about that this week. Mm. Now, that was actually bipartisan policy, Liberals and Labor, East Coast. The West Coast did a very different thing. So, mm. you know... Well, you... well, the West Coast has their issue, as you know, and, and, and that, that's been a different system for some time. But um, you can't have it both ways, though, as, as the Labor Party. I mean, the Labor Party were in government, they made that decision, and they were caught out this, in this last week or so, saying, oh, no-one knew what the impact would be. Well, they had advice saying there would be a negative impact. They went ahead with that. So we've acted on that and we've put in place the, re the regime which will, which will enable us to make a decision to ensure Australian gas remains for Australian use to, to the extent that that's necessary. But the other thing we've been doing is particularly taking on the big retail companies and ensuring that people can be aware and put in a position to get a better deal. Now, the whole standard offer um, racket, which has been going on, where people have this beneficial period or discount period, and then it all it tapers out and they go on a higher rate. Well, we've blown the whistle on that, and we've been working with those energy companies to ensure that they're going to give Australian, retail, Australian customers a better deal. All right, let's get to Liddell, the big issue of the week. Now, the Prime Minister meets the AGL boss tomorrow, Andy Vesey, mm. and he is saying that their company... Uh, wants to transition to gas. Will you assist them? Well, I'm, I'm happy to assist to see that they actually sell Liddell to a responsible party, which is what Andy um, said that they were prepared to do when I was in the room and when we last discussed that issue. It's very important we keep Liddell open. I mean, it's bad enough Labor locked us out on gas. Now they want to lock us out on existing coal-fired power stations. And this remains an important part of the baseload uh, supply that is necessary, not just for the next few years, uh, but for, for decades to come. I think, if I'm reading it correctly, I think they, they also uh, are mindful of keeping up uh, uh, some sort of plant in Liddell, but switching to gas, possibly. Well, Will you support that? Well, well th they're decisions they make. But remember, 85% of, of their resource comes from coal. And, uh, and that's where they're currently sitting at. And, and the commercial decisions that they've made, which has seen them in, the last, in their latest profits report, I mean, they've done pretty well. They're up over 500 million this year. Yeah. That's almost a billion dollar turnaround. As people's power prices have been going up, um, mm -hmm. I can see who's benefiting. So is it for sale? Well, they're saying if they'll sell it to a responsible party. And I think that would be a good thing. There are plenty of responsible parties, I'm sure, who'd be happy to take it on. Now, I understand that Liddell has been burning coal at $20 a tonne under a special deal forced on Glencore by the New South Wales government, mm. and that that deal ends in 2023. Doesn't this totally undercut your argument? No, I don't see why. I mean, you just enter into new Because it would be 60 bucks. Well, why would it be 60 bucks? Because that's what it is now. That, well, that's, the that's based on international prices and domestic prices for coal, uh, for, for domestic consumption, are different to the international prices. You're comparing apples with pears there, mate. I don't think you're comparing with other fruit. Um, th th these are different uh, issues and the commercial negotiations, I have great confidence, would be able to ensure that a new owner 
would be able to make it work properly. Now, who that new owner might be, I mean, there could be any number of sources for that, and I'm sure they'd take into account. But the way AGL's been talking, it sounds like it's worthless, and maybe they maybe they're going to sell it for nothing, mate. Well, Liddell says that it would cost $840 million to remediate the, the plants. Now, a, f a future owner is not going to want to take that liability, will you? Well, I think... I think those who are trying to shut Liddell have a vested interest in talking down um, what the viability of it might be. It doesn't surprise me that a big energy company wants to see a big source of supply go out of the market. I mean, that drives prices up and that benefits energy companies. Now, maybe if we'd taken the same approach to Wyala, where we've taken a very proactive approach in another sector, uh, where we've actually got involved, we've been able to secure a, a buyer and provided the right support to make that work, and now there's a lot of people down there with the support of Rowan Ramsey championing keeping that station open, keeping that steel plant yep. open. I mean, that's the result we've got there, but in the Hunter Valley, we've got the no-coal coalition of all the Labor members, led by Joel Fitzgibbon, no-coal Joel, saying, here's the white flag, shut Liddell down. All right. Now, if we'd taken that approach in Wyala or Portland, people would be out of work. Right, and that will be the outcome of what Joel and the Labor Party and Bill Shorten is doing in the Let me bring you to the Valley. crux of this. What's more important, having affordable and reliable energy or meeting our emission reduction targets? Well, we're meeting all three. And, that, and that's our goal. Well, you're not meeting affordable, all three, clearly. Reliable. Well, which one are we not meeting? Well, it's not affordable Well, that's why. start. Well, th but that's you say it's not reliable. No, well, with coal-fired power stations in the mix, it will be reliable, and that's why we're keeping them in the mix. Affordability, reliability, and meeting our other obligations is the trinity of things that our policy is designed to achieve. Yeah, but it's not meeting them, is it? Well, that's why you have the policy to ensure it achieves them into the future. You haven't got a policy. There's no energy policy. For... Well, then, no, no, five things. If you, if, you, if you said we don't have a policy, here's five things. First, keep gas in Australia for domestic use. B, ensure that retail providers are giving Australians the best deal. Three, ensure that the, the regulatory arrangement, particularly around things like the limited members review, are outlawed so you, can, you don't have regulations driving up prices. Four, invest billions of dollars in lower emissions and new technologies. And five, invest in production, storage... You've got no and investment mechanism. I haven't finished the five points yet, Andrew. You okay. said we didn't have a policy. Right. And five, on storage, transmission, new, new investment in new power sources... The biggest investment in storage we've seen in the Southern Hemisphere and the biggest one we've seen in Snowy 2.0. Now, that's a five-point plan. Investment mechanism, put... Treasurer? Exactly. That's part of the fifth point I was just talking about. And we're seeking to land that. And I tell you who's standing in the way of landing something on a new investment framework. And that's the Labor Party, because they are putting in a, a no-coal ban, effectively, on landing an agreement. So we're looking to land an agreement here, but if Labor are going to remain steadfastly about any, any, any concession towards coal, then what they're doing is putting higher prices on the Australian people. Treasurer, out of time, thanks so much. Thanks a lot, Andrew. Good to be with you. Call the first witness. What is your nationality? I was a British citizen by descent through my Scottish-born father. You have two nationalities. My clients are caught completely by surprise. Bill Shorten claims that he has renounced his British citizenship, but he's never proven it. I think he's creating a big issue by failing to do so. They're trying to sound some sort of British agent. Yeah, baby! <laughs> Uh, my father was born in Tumut. I'm not a dual citizen. <laughs> Think he died? Definitely here. It seems that being born in Australia makes me a colonial pom. Kill him! Uh, 
the issue here is, am I or was I ever entitled to the rights and privileges of a US citizen? And I'm not. But I think the High Court will decide that. I was a uh, citizen of the UK and uh, colonies. I have always thought that I was British, uh, that I was Australian, always thought that I was Australian. First, tell me how old you were. I was 25 years old at the time. And what was the arrangement with your mother? It would appear that she made an application for me uh, to become an Italian citizen. No, look at me. Is that what happened? Uh, at the time, um, I, I thought that was what had happened. Um, okay. Come on up here. All you have to do is tell me the truth and then we don't have a problem. You know how you don't want to lie to your parents? You don't want to lie to me worse. The government set the standard with Matt Canavan. When someone's in that circumstance, they should stand aside until the issue's been resolved. Some guys run and some guys stay. And I'm here to tell you, this boy's soul is intact. Well, I've just been completely transparent. You hold office until such time as death, or you resign, or the High Court finds otherwise. That's how the laws work. It's before the High Court, let the High Court make its judgment. Order in the court! Now, what do we have here? Now, I'm sure you'd agree, that was absolutely astonishing, wasn't it? it was, <laughs> if that isn't for the National Archives, I don't know what. Now, Murph, you've, you've got a, um, a highlight uh, from the uh, Nationals conference. Oh, yes, conference. Bre breaking, news, breaking from the, news from the Nationals conference. The Burke motion has been defeated, 55 votes to 51 votes. So, quite close, really. Yes. The yes. important thing, though, is that George Christensen can now go back to his electorate and say, I put this thing up. Uh, I'm, I'm just as opposed to the burqa as One Nation is, and in the end, that's all it's about. Yeah. All they're doing here is trying to get uh, an equality of policy, the Nats on the ground, to fend off One Nation. Yeah. That's what this is now, about. Uh, Labor promised this week um, disruption. Mm. It tried to deliver it. It had many suspension motions. They were galore. Uh, let's have a look at how the week played out. The entire legitimacy of this government hangs on the, uh, the strength of that advice. This is a government that claims to have a majority of one and has become the first government in the history of Australia that has gone to the High Court to ask whether or not it's true, whether or not it's true that they in fact have a lawful majority. Over the last two weeks, all we've heard from the opposition is their plans to create trouble and chaos, so they've said, in the House of Representatives. Oh, yes, you all have. You all have. That's what you've all said on my to left. do. You've all said to do that. The member for try to create, Try to create chaos in the parliament. Labor could... They've, they've taken a leaf straight out of Tony Abbott's playbook on how to run the opposition in these circumstances. Well, that, that is, that's no justification. No justification, Riles. How do you think it will went, those tactics? Look, um, fell a bit flat, really, probes. I mean, Labor had to do it because they telegraphed it so comprehensively. You know, it was their honeymooners moment. One of these days, Alice, one of these days, power, right in the kisser. <laughs> and they had to do it. You know, they had to aim up. Um, it is a tactic that Abbott used very effectively. Uh, Christopher Pine... Um, shut down almost, I think, all of those uh, suspension motions. So we didn't actually have a substantive debate about the issue, which is a substantial issue 
and a real problem for the yeah. government. Well, we had a lot of theatre, yeah. a lot of theatre, and when there is theatre, I mean, it looks like discord and disrupt, and you know, they're all a bunch of mugs out there in the greater puntocracy. People say Parliament's a, a circus. Um, yeah. you know, the government uh, is at fault. So that's that's Labor's broader objective. I think we we do need to lift it out of the tactical for a minute and focus on the substantial. Now, I, I, I agree. Look, it's arguable whether or not uh, disrupting question time was the you know, best best mechanism in order to raise these issues. But there's a very important substantial point sitting underneath them, which is that we have ministers who are currently have questions over their eligibility who are making decisions every day of the week. Mm. And, or not uh, making decisions. Or, or not. Or not. Or not. Look, look, before yeah. we do get into that, let's just have a look at the, the echoes from the past because, as you were pointing out, Riles, there is a real similarity to what happened earlier. And if anything symbolises the relentless negativity of those opposite, it is the day-after-day day suspensions of standing orders. How do I know it's Wednesday, Deputy Speaker? How do I know it's Wednesday? Because this is the third suspension of standing orders this week. How will I know it's Thursday? Because tomorrow will be the fourth. <laughs> now, that, of course, was Anthony Albanese in 2013 when the... the, the you know, the foot was uh, the shoe was on the other foot. Yeah, right. uh, so now, this familiarity with tactics it, it does frustrate us all, doesn't it? Well, sure. Uh, and and again, I'm not uh, obviously uh, voters look at the parliament, look at chaos in the parliament, and think, oh, mm. look at those wallies all screaming at one another again. That's fine. But there is a substantial issue here to prosecute, yeah. and I think the opposition would not actually be doing its job if it was not prosecuting the substance of this matter. There are questions about eligibility. The Constitution says very clearly that you, you cannot be a minister if you are not a parliamentarian. There are a number of decisions or decisions mm, not, not being made, made this, yeah. at this point in time mm. as a consequence of the questions over these particular individuals. Mm. There's a serious question about whether the gas mechanism, for example, yeah, right. is being de yeah. delayed mm. because yep. Barnaby Joyce is in this portfolio. Yep. Mm. I think it's correct, actually, of Labor to turn public attention to this because this is a this is a real thing this isn't a confected thing this is if these if these people are knocked out if they're not eligible yeah. to be in the parliament this becomes a very real Stutch. thing yeah well it is a legitimate issue it's a government with you know a wafer thin majority uh, which is now under under some sort of constitutional question mark uh, that said i think you saw this week that there's limits to how much uh, the opposition can play the I'm, we're going to disrupt the whole place and make it look no, like chaos okay. yeah. when you've got things such as a possible threat of nuclear war in the region and the government shows that it's uh, trying to address a very real practical question of of energy security and the government uh, is not really falling the government itself is not in chaos the government is working reasonably well in the yeah. circumstances yeah. i think you show there's a limit to how much you yeah, can well, just look, go I, in there i think and decisions are, are being made stutch uh, and in fact some decisions are being made that uh, you know, on reflection, could be about a by-election uh, coming in a certain seat, as you'll see. Given the Bolivia Hill upgrade on the New England Highway was funded in the 2013 budget, why did it take until last week for tenders to be called on this vital project? Is it because the government and the Deputy Prime Minister are preparing for a snap by-election in New England. It's reducing congestion, it's improving productivity, it's creating jobs in regional Australia, particularly in the seat of New England. Particularly in the seat of New England, the seat which has never had better representation than it's getting right now but by the Deputy Prime Minister and the leader of the National Party. Mr Riley, curious? 
Yeah, look, if the Nats aren't making preparations for a by-election in New England, they should be, and I reckon they are. I'd say the printers are probably whirring up there with how to vote cards and the posters and the core flutes are being made up as we speak. And these, you know, the, these road projects, I think that was the best moment Labor yeah. had in the Parliament this week. And it, there were a few others, a few others deci other decisions right. being made about That's New right, and so there's a confluence of things being, being done in the, in the electorate of New England that uh, with, with uh, road funding and, and, and what have you, where they've just been gathering dust on the shelf for years and suddenly they pop up in the porridge a few weeks before there may be a by-election. You know, I'm inspired by Hugh Parkinson, you know, all these cinematic uh, <laughs> uh, you know, illusions, but it's Muriel's wedding, you know. <laughs> you know? Um, fancy seeing you here. Don't give him ideas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 get on that. But, but, the, the, but it's, it is a real issue. Um, on Merce's point about decisions not being made, that's not for, uh, section 44, that's section 64, 64. of the Constitution. Yeah, yeah. That's the one they're really worried about. So Barnaby Joyce um, isn't, uh, and, and Bill Shorten's been taunting him all week, pull the trigger, go on, you've got these mm. gas controls, pull mm. the trigger, go on, pull the trigger, knowing that if he does, he might be shooting his own foot off because it's, it may be a contestable decision by, by the minister. That's why this is serious. So mm. beneath all that froth and bubble, a very serious issue going mm. on in Parliament. Uh, now, citizenship, there was a moment from Mr Cutthrough himself with regards to Bill Shorten. Let's hear from Tony Abbott. And I say to Bill Shorten, show it or shut up. Show your letter or shut up about Barnaby Joyce. Because if you haven't got a letter, you are in exactly the same position that he is in. Where's the proof? Where's the evidence? He won't show it. I seek leave to table a copy of correspondence from the UK Home Office, confirming that I successfully renounced my UK citizenship prior to my election to Parliament in 2007. I offer this proof to the Parliament today to put an end to baseless allegations, not reward them. Now, talking about theatre, that was quite a fascinating moment. It, 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 was it rope-a-dope, do you think? Uh, it wasn't, in a sense. But look, I, the things that interested me about that was, was obviously orchestrated by the PMO, that Tony Abbott has gone out there at their behest. And yeah. so, OK, Tony, you throw the first punch, you go out there. Fantastic line, great grab, you know, put up or shut up. It always, it always works. And then Malcolm Turnbull comes in behind him in the parliament and, come on, show us your document, show us your document. Oh. And he says, well, here it is. And, and for Labor, it's, it's like a birther moment. Mm. Oh, seriously, you know, the, the reversing the onus of proof. Um, I, OK, well, reluctantly, here's my paper. You know, you've shamed me into doing it. What have you achieved? Now, show us yours. So he gives Labor the moral authority then to say, well, hang on. Joe Bloggs over there and, and Lily Kafoops and, and you know, Murdoch mm. McGurk and Squirt. Yeah. Where are yours? Yeah, mm. oh, I know them. Um, Murph, do you think, though, that the PMO was actually instructing Tony Abbott to do that? Well, well I don't know. I've, I've, not, I've not checked that. I don't know. I don't know whether that's, that's right or not, but I'm, I'm not disputing what Riles said. Because the alternative theory could be that he just didn't think that the PMO was landing any blows uh, on Turner. It's orchestrated. I'm sure. I, I mean, it, it had to be. It had to be. Because Turner was ready, went in the parliament, he backed him in, and, and off, unless he was, you know, that agile, shall we say, to, to um, adapt to it, I, I think that was an orchestration. There was definitely a, um, a glint in the eye of Bill Shorten, though, when he produced the document, as if he said, you know, he knew that this was the moment. Well, they've yeah. been trying to draw, I think, uh, Shorten, part of the reason, well, Shorten didn't uh, release his own documents for a couple of reasons. One was this genuine issue about reversing the onus of proof. The other was, I think, uh, he was trying to draw the government out mm. into, into an overstatement about his position. 
uh, and sort of bearing in mind the overstatements about the New Zealand conspiracy the week before, I think Labor was deliberately hold, holding back in order to draw the government out. So he always had the documents. So I suppose it's just a matter of when he produced them. It's all a bit of argy-bargy, isn't it, until we get the High Court decision. So, you know, there'll be, yeah, that's you know, it's a bit of a vacuum. So, you know, there'll be, you this know, sort of stuff will go round and round and yeah, round. Well, talking, talking about the High Court, Stutch, I mean, they, the government did have a win of sorts, well, kind of a, a big win with the uh, uh, the same-sex marriage postal survey being um, ruled uh, legal. Yep. So um, yeah. the question is now, how, how does Malcolm Turnbull handle it from here? Yeah, well, he should. He, it, it, look, it, let's let's answer this question by looking at what Malcolm Malcolm Turnbull's two opponents will do in this campaign. One being Bill Shorten, and the other being Tony, Tony Abbott. Abbott yeah. Neither one of them are going to waste this campaign. Bill Shorten will try and use this campaign to look prime ministerial because that's his major barrier to entry at this point. If we if we look at all of the published opinion polls, voters don't much care for him. Mm. So this is a, a genuine opportunity for him to campaign, which he really likes doing, get out on the stump, which he really likes doing, and 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 use that as a connection point. Tony Abbott, too, is going to use this opportunity because the, the biggest calling card he's got with the colleagues is I can smash Labor. In any head-to-head, -head, mm. I can smash Labor. So Tony Abbott is going to go out there and try and smash Labor in this campaign. And in fact, we had a moment uh, this week where Bill Shorten said to the Prime Minister, join me. Will the Prime Minister now accept my invitation to write a joint letter to all Australians recommending voting yes to marriage equality. Mr Speaker, I'm interested in the assumption that the Leader of the Opposition makes that uh, uh, joining uh, his signature to mine would actually increase the case for the yes vote. Mr Speaker, the Leader of the Opposition can make his case and I'll make mine. Stutch, that's... Uh... It's not likely, is it, they're going to campaign together? Uh, I couldn't see that because I can't see the uh, Turnbull campaigning with Short and, you know, where's Barnaby Joyce on this, you know, and just in the whole thing of it. I think the, the issue here is that the, the yes case uh, has been very divided on, on this issue and we've seen it just in the nature of the constitutional challenge and it really would have been a remarkable thing if the High Court had ruled that the government went to an election seeking to do a, do a plebiscite, wasn't allowed to use the ABS to ask a, mm -hmm. ask a question of the people, that would have been an extraordinary thing. So they wasted a fair bit of effort in just trying to knock it down and you've had people on the Yes case you know, trying to do that. So the Yes case is now divided and probably not taking seriously enough uh, some of the le perhaps legitimate or reasonable or arguable positions that are put by the no yeah. case on various religious freedoms and so forth. So I think you do have a danger that this becomes uh, a bit of a Brexit or a Trump moment mm. in Australian politics. Yeah, in that, possibly. In, possibly. That, in that, though that populist thing is as much cultural, I think, as sort of anti-globalisation and anti-economic. So, so I think you do need to get yes forces to you know unite and put and deal with a lot of the issues that are thrown up. There's the a couple, couple of things there, probes. That that High Court challenge by Wilkie et al. was just an act of uh, of ideological vanity that was never going to get up, right? And it, and it did, and Stutch is right, it, it diverted the attention of the, of the campaign. So those who are strategically working up the yes case would go, no, don't do that. Yeah. But the other point here for Shorten is, um, to, to just feed off what Murphy said, he's, he's hit a sweet spot because Turnbull isn't going to go out 
on the hustings, you know, thumping the, the, the tub and saying you must vote yes, because he doesn't see that as a role of a Prime Minister. And that, that was Malcolm Turnbull in another guise in the Republican movement, mm. fine, not as a Prime Minister. But Shorten doesn't have that restriction. So Shorten can go out there and, and, and he can campaign for yes. And if yes gets up, he can claim responsibility. If no gets up, he blames Turnbull. It's win-win for him. Yeah, now let's just move on to energy because uh, time is pressing. Now, this was a big issue, whether, whether Liddell should be uh, kept open. As far as the government put it, um, there was absolutely no option. Now, it, it, the, the debate was really fuelled, I think, by Tony Abbott uh, again. Yeah. He, he, he tweeted, um, maybe, maybe the tweet can be uh, put up there. He, he said uh, that it was good that AGL is no longer getting out of coal. Now, Andy Vesey, he very quickly retweet, well, tweeted in reply, we're getting out of coal. We committed to the closure of the Liddell power station in 2022, the end of its operating life. Now, this is, this is quite problematic for the government, isn't it? I mean, you've got, yeah. a, you've got a big boss, Dutch, you're saying we're not, we're not going back. I think it's probably a good week, reasonably, for, for Turnbull and just pure politics in getting out there and saying, well, we're not going to allow the lights to go out by coal-fired power stations being shut down for perhaps ideological reasons. And the Hazelwood shut down in March... Uh, in you know, retrospect, has caused sort of short-term damage to the, the, the reliability of the electricity grid. Whatever you think about, you know, the long-term thing about what we should do with renewables and climate. So I think he's probably looking in political terms that he's that he's that he's doing a, an active thing, getting out there and doing something. Probably plays well, but I think this is a real problem uh, in terms of uh, the government, as as we saw Scott Morrison there, wanting to get business going and profits up and wages going, and the whole point of the energy solution supposedly is to give investment certainty to get people to invest mm. yet here we have a government really strong arming uh, a company to saying what you should do with you know with one of your assets uh, they're also strong arming the uh, the energy uh, retailers saying that you're basically ripping off ripping off customers now you can have an argument about that but it's not the cause of the problem the cause of the problem is that politicians on both sides over yeah. the last 10 years made a complete hash yeah. Yeah. of uh, of energy policy and climate change mm. policy yeah. and as a result now we see either government strong arming companies telling them what to do with their investments yeah. or we see them threatening to uh, force uh, big uh, LNG producers to break their export contractors. So this yeah. is a real sort of, I think, an overall mess. But we of have a gone problem. from let the market rip to <laughs> everyone's an intervention. Mass intervention yeah, is now. Intervention. I mean, what they were saying about uh, what Scott Morrison was saying about labour and the mm. gas gas exports. Well, it's it's yeah. quite different to what they would they would have done in 2012. Yeah, you know, the, the two things there though aren't mutually exclusive. You know. Um, uh, Abbott can say it's great to see that AGL's getting out of coal and Vesey can say, um, he's, he's, um, you know, we're, we're not going to keep... Um, sorry, Abbott can say, great to see AGL staying in coal and Vesey can say, well, we're not going to continue with Liddell. Well, that's, that might be right. Um, someone else might operate Liddell. Mm. So it may go for another five years with, you know, high efficiency, low emissions boilers inserted into it. The economics of it are going to... You know, it's going to go the way of the dodo, this thing. Yeah. You know, it's a belching monster and it's going to go the way of the dodo. It might be 22, it might be 27, it might be 30. Someone might, might make some money. There's going to be massive remediation costs at the end of it. And the thing that Scott Morrison said to you this morning, Probes, that just struck me is, of course, there's market manipulation going on here. These guys are, are, are very happy to get rid of coal because they know that that puts gas prices through the roof. Mm. And this is a bloke on, how much cabbage is he getting? $7 million a year or something. And... 
And um, they, they're making massive profits because the, the gas price, it's supply and demand. Yeah. No supply of coal, gas goes through the roof, happy days. Now, Labor's not making uh, much of an issue of the, of the AGL one as we speak. Um, Malcolm Turnbull believes he knows why. I mean, the incompetence of the Labor Party in energy over a long period of time is hard to believe. I mean, blackout bill, fair dinkum, as my old dad would have said, he is so hopeless he could not find his backside with both hands. Blackout Bill Shorten, with his faithful sidekick, no coal Joel Fitzgibbon, who represents an electorate full of coal miners, he doesn't just, no coal Joel, doesn't just want them to have a day off, he wants them to have the rest of their lives off. He wants to put them all out of work. Politics on this is well, pretty amazing. Well, isn't it? hang on a minute. Hang on a minute, everyone. Just hang on a minute. One, this is Malcolm Turnbull, you know, saying blackout bill, for heaven's sake. Two, in terms of culprits of, of what's gone wrong in, the, in energy policy in Australia over the last 10 years, it is, it is wrong, it is not, not only misleading, wrong to say that Labor are the cause of what's occurred. The specific problems we're talking about in the energy market right now. Mm. Here's what happened. Tony Abbott removed a market mechanism mm. that was basically the, the signal to the market about what investment would be required in baseload. That, that, that signal to the market was predicated on more gas coming in, uh, more renewables coming in. So the Liberals removed that, replaced it with zip, left in place the renewable energy target, which basically is a pull forward mechanism to stimulate investment in renewables. Now, Tony Abbott would say, well, I tried to kill that and the Senate wouldn't let me. That's true. But anyway, whatever, that remained in place. Now the government's turning around and saying, oh, how did all this investment in renewables happen and no investment in baseload happen? I don't know. So the, the problem of goes back before that, yeah. though. You've got Bob Brown, the Greens, and the CPRS. Yeah. Malcolm Turnbull on the side then of the CPRS. Exactly. And now we've got Black Coal Malcolm, Milkup Malcolm. We have the absurd spectre in this country of, of, the, of the coalition now going full Soviet in terms of its, if, its response to energy policy and decrying a market mechanism, which actually would have sorted this out. Yeah. I mean, I'm sorry, but it's but people can't be allowed to get away with completely yeah. rewriting. So, so, so how do you land a, a, an investment mechanism in this environment? Well, because what, it's poisonous, isn't it? I so think it's, it's clearly it's a joint effort over the past ten years that both sides have done. No, no, and, both and, sides and have made mistakes. And, and, both and sides have made mistakes. Uh, and I think what Turnbull's trying to push is on Labor does have and Shorten has a 50% renewable energy target yeah. by 2030, yeah, which is really, three. which is sort of, I think, unlikely to happen. Yeah. And what we're seeing now is that the electricity grid has, hasn't been up to taking so much force-fed renewables into it. It's become destabilised. Now, it may do over time with storage and batteries and all this sort of thing, mm. but at the moment, the, the sort of game is the thing has been destabilised, you know, and you can mm. argue the toss about, you know, whose fault it is. Mm. It's been destabilised. I and don't now, think you and, can argue the toss. We could spend some time doing that. But, but now the question is, so now they're forced into making a lot of interventions, which I think I'd agree with Catherine, which are sort of uh, on the run, 
yeah. and uh, and won't work. So the so thing the, is, yeah. so what they've got to try and do is now they've got to get this clean energy target up, which is more of a market mechanism. Perhaps by Turnbull well, running the coal it's, line, it's not he's, actually he's, Michael. It's not. Well, it's actually. more of a market mechanism than than uh, than what we've got than what no, we've no, got now. No, no, but this is this is the irony of the of of the whole. Now we're going from renewable subsidies to coal subsidies. That's mm. that's where we are now. Yeah, we're subsidising everything. What are they actually going to try and do? Yes, they're going to no, try no. and get up a clean energy target, which is what? which is a which is a form of. You know, I'm not saying it's a, by any means the, f the first best no, option. No, it's probably about agree the fifth and, best option. And I, isn't well, it? I totally agree with you, but the politics yeah. of sell, it. Try to sell that to the average voter. You know, clean coal. It's like nice pedophile. It just yeah. doesn't exist well, right in their mind. No, but it's like. Well. But there's just just a basic, just a conceptual point, right? Yeah. The government's now saying, okay, well, well, rents are bad because they bring on too much renewables investment, and there, and there's not a, there's not a base load uh, signal. Well, what's the government? Well, no, I can, you can argue about the rights and wrongs of it, but the fact is, what they're going to no, try no, and do is, is get it, up the clean energy. What is well, it? we know what the clean. It's proposed by the Finkel inquiry. Yeah. So, Alan Finkel, the chief scientist, has proposed this thing, which will supposedly be uh, technology neutral. And, and I agree, it's not necessarily the, the best yeah. target. You get okay, it. let's but, just but let's getting just, the coal. Let's up, go but to one of the questions. The coal is designed. What, one of the things that Turnbull's doing on coal is to try and get to satisfy parts of the coalition, the nationals on coal, and make it easier to get through his own and party room a clean energy target, which will probably allow technically coal to come in, but in practice is unlikely to. Yeah. Uh, look, do you think that you can actually uh, get affordable, reliable and sustainable? I, I, think, I think this trinity that Scott Morris was talking about and that Finkel claimed you could in his report, that you get prices down, emissions down and reliability up. I think we've got to a stage now where it'd have to be a big question mark about actually whether Murph, that can actually what do you happen. think? What, is the can you get all three, they, all three landed can, in one? Well... No. Uh, well, you can. Uh, it, it's it's moot whether or not the clean energy target will get through the party room at this point. I think that's that's quite moot. And and then you've got to look at short term versus medium term. I mean, what Alan Finkel said about the clean energy target is that it will lower power prices compared to business mm. as usual. Mm. That does not mean that power prices yes. will come down. It means compared to business mm. as usual. They will be lower. So the trajectory. So yeah, the trajectory comes down yeah. compared to business as it's, usual. There is a, largely the faith that if you get a stable framework of, and I think we'd be agree, not necessarily the ideal framework, that you'll get more investment, and the more the investment certainty will lead to more investment and yeah. bring down prices. No, no, but I think we're still there, seeing that will still, make a contribution. We're still seeing. Yeah. Well, that's how the modelling worked. That yeah. the increased certainty supposedly yeah. gives you investment to bring down prices. We're still seeing this is a very highly politicised area where both sides are still yeah. you know and bashing business so you're bashing business the energy retailers and AGL and you're saying yeah we want to give people more 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 uncertainty to let invest. Me, let me jump in there now citizenship wasn't the only C word that was discussed uh, this week in, in politics there was a story that that emerged that um, uh, Mr Turnbull had used the C-bomb about uh, Tony Abbott. It's kind of curious timing given that uh, he was critical of Tony Abbott uh, for being drunk in Parliament. Uh, let's see how it was dealt with on radio. What about the C-word? Do you ever use it? <laughs> I am very um, conscious of the need to, um, to uh, you know, ensure that my language is wholesome, uh, but, I'm, but I am imperfect and fail from time to time, but I... I don't, you know, I don't have a reputation for uh, using uh, bad language. I work for Malcolm Turnbull. Uh, if he says he doesn't use that language, then I have to say it is wrong because he does. When it occurred in the middle of 2014, I was asked by the then Prime Minister Tony Abbott to make sure that story never saw the light of day. I don't know why someone has chosen to put it out in the public domain. 
Uh, Somebody, <laughs> I wonder. Who did that? Well, it turns out we know that he uses the C word because Corey Bernardi told us. He, uh, he tweeted that uh, he once <laughs> said, Hey, Corey. <laughs> now, is this relevant? Uh, look, it is. It what is. Does it if tell you, us about it that is, argument. It is if you're Tony Abbott. Look, I, I can kind of see the the template that's being applied, which was Rudd, you know, and, and uh, yeah, whatever he did on the plane over to um, the Middle East, oh, you know, throwing his throwing his lollies or something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and and where's my hairdryer? It's all about kind of delegitimising the the the, yeah. the, the, um, the prime minister's position. It is tit for tat. I mean, we know that. Yeah. We've we've seen this often enough to know what's going on here. So. Uh, Abbott gets a whack, he gives one back, and he gives it back through, you know, he's smart about it, he does it, uh, someone down the line does it. I don't know who, who could yes. it be? Well, I, look, I don't know whether it was that episode that left George Brandis speechless, but something did. <laughs> Mr President, um, yesterday, um, Senator Chisholm asked me a question in relation to um, NDRRA payments. I see. Leave the table and have the answer. I hope the attorney gets better. I did promise him we wouldn't ask him a question today because he was ill. And we we honoured our promise. Uh, <laughs> I think I detected some warmth there Do between you, George yeah, Brandis yeah. and uh, Penny Wong. Now, our panel, Catherine Murphy, Michael Stutchbury and Mark Riley, will be back shortly with final observations. But it's now time for Mike Bowers and Talking Pictures. I'm Mike Bowers and I'm photographer at large for The Guardian Australia. I'm talking pictures this week with BuzzFeed's Canberra Bureau Chief, Alice Workman. A very warm welcome on this cold Canberra morning. It's actually warming up in Canberra. Maybe it's the news that the government have finally gotten their postal survey through. Penny uh, Wong seemed to think as the week went on that uh, she saw the rainbow connection as she uh, tweeted this picture. A rainbow can be seen from Parliament House this morning. Whatever happens today, we can get it done. Yeah, that was Thursday morning before the High Court decision. Yeah, yeah. And then after the High Court decision, a rainbow popped up in one of the courtyards in Parliament as well. Greg Smithy-Smith seems to think that with all the tumultuous things going on in the world that uh, um, what is occupying the leaders of North Korea and the US is the world's gone mad, $122 million non-binding postal vote. This was my favourite cartoon of the week. I just love the idea that this is how the world is looking at us right now. <laughs> Cuckoo. Alice, the decision came down from the High Court during question time on Thursday and both leaders were told in different ways. Uh, the leader of the opposition, Bill Shorten, was handed a note. Malcolm turned and read his, uh, his mobile phone for quite a while uh, and uh, the relief was... Uh, Palpable. was all over yeah. his face. Uh, I did love this. This is another ABC polypix. Just the look of love on the, on the face of Kevin and, and Tony here. It's a great tweet from uh, Channel 9's Charles Croucher. Two years into backbench and chill, and he gives you this look. Alice, uh, truth was stranger than fiction this week as a tale of two citizenships turned another page. Um, a vote on uh, auditing all members of parliament. When the eyes passed to the right of the chair, they had some strange partners. What I love about this photo is that Lee Rhiannon, left renewal, isn't sitting with her own party. Yeah. She's sitting with One Nation. Yeah, and just a little bit later <laughs> during the vote... Hey, Corey, uh, how's that going solo going? Do you think that maybe it's a good idea? Should I give it a crack? <laughs> um, this was uh, as uh, Parliament got down to it on Monday, and I think probably Darren here is showing Penny his social security number. Or maybe it's, uh, oh, look, Bill's finally tabled his uh, dual citizen documents. There we go. <laughs> Can you believe that was only five days ago? I know. Oof. 
So poor Barnaby, he finds it very hard to hide his emotions. It's, it, he kind of wears his heart on his sleeve. And, and I, I kind of thought, wouldn't it be great if we could have like a, a series of Barnaby emojis? Well, you know, he used to wear makeup to question time yeah. to stop the red coming yeah. through, but he stopped doing that. But he was wearing yes. socks with sheep on them. Yeah, I know. Lovely picture from ABC cameraman, Matt Roberts. Uh, is this seat taken? It's the wonderful part when there is a division on, and I love the way that the opposition gets to go and just sort of try it sort of <laughs> try it out try it out how does, how does the front bench suit me <laughs> it was threatened species day on thursday and they brought a whole heap of australian native threatened species to meet a couple of threatened species in terms of dual citizens well you can see one threatened species here holding a snake yep um and, <laughs> and then is this a tasmanian tiger no is, it's erica bet and warren who's brandishing a uh, scaly python at uh, the minister for energy and environment and a wombat and a wombat one of the animals relieved itself on Tanya Plebisek. A wombat peed on her hand. I've had three children. I've been peed on before. <laughs> <laughs> um, Albo and Christopher Pine are great mates on and off screen and uh, they pose with the bilby here. And just out of shot, all of parliamentary security were keeping a very close eye on this bilby. Covered face. Covered face. Now, National should get on it. Might have been Pauline in there. <laughs> um, look, it's been a great pleasure unpicking the big, big week of Parliament and uh, I'll let you do the honours. Back to you, probes. <laughs> <laughs> very quickly. Uh, probes, an observation, I think since Andrew Hurst took over as Liberal Party uh, director, things have changed. We've, we've heard Milkett Malcolm there talking about Blackout Bill. He's, he's got sharper. Uh, we've also seen Malcolm Turnbull doing a lot of FM radio and uh, look out for him doing a lot more. You have your you know, Netflix and chills moment, but uh, you also get to talk to a young audience, impressionable audience about North Korea, electricity prices, same-sex marriage, all those other things once they've poked fun at the Prime Minister. So more of that to come. Dutch. Uh, political populism sweeping the world, uh, Brexit, uh, Trump, across the ditch in, Tasma in, uh, in New Zealand. Uh, you've got a, a new Labor leader, opposition leader, Jacinda Ardern. You've got a, an election there in a, in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, over there, you've got the economy growing at 3% plus. Unemployment's down to 4.8%. Uh, you've got a budget surplus, top marginal tax rate of 33%. Of, uh, but uh, the Labor leaders has jumped into the front of Bill English, the, the Prime Minister, with quite populist things uh, rep replicated from Jeremy Corbyn in the, in the UK, such as free university education. Speaking of crusading women, just on behalf of all of the panellists on this program over a very, very long period of time, I'd like to say thank you very much to Kelly Mayo, the executive producer of this show, it's her last program today, uh, and we're very sorry to see Kel go, but we really wish her well. Here, here. Precisely. Now, Barry, Barry is back next week with any luck, but from his sickbed, he wanted to say that after 11 years of one of the longest partnerships in journalism has ended, with executive producer Kelly Mayo moving on to the role of managing editor of ABC's Asia-Pacific unit. Under Kelly's leadership, Insiders has become the top-rating morning show on Australian TV. We'll miss her and we'll miss her and wish her good luck in her new role. We'll leave you with the latest in our series of military band welcomes for visiting leaders. <laughs> this time it's the turn of the Samoan police at the Pacific Island Leaders Forum and it was a thriller, really. <laughs>
You're making us all feel very excited about being here.